Heavenly Father, we just give you praise and we give you thanks. Thank you for being with us. And now, Lord, we just want to worship you through the declaration of Scripture, Lord. As we declare this once more, Lord, reveal Jesus to us, Lord. We want to see our King. We want to know His kingdom. And Lord, we want to receive even our assignments from this revelation. And so please be with me, be with my brothers and sisters, and especially with those who are also listening in uh, to this recording. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those who have been with us on this journey, you know that we've actually started this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. We titled it actually Mount Makarios because the word blessed is translated from the Greek word makarios. And Jesus spoke this sermon up on the mountain, so we just aptly titled it as Going Up Mount Makarios. And after nine sessions, finally, we are now getting into the main sermon. We had only just scratched the surface. Nine sessions, meaning we went through one session of an introduction, the other eight sessions, we went through the Beatitudes, B1 to B8. And uh, we know that the Beatitudes actually formed Jesus' text. It was only His introduction. That was what it was. He just declared, blessed are these, blessed are those, blessed are these, blessed are those. And after eight Beatitudes, the introduction is sort of over and we are coming into the main sermon. Jesus gave us a very broad picture of what kingdom living is all about. He declares the blessedness of those of us who are kingdom subjects, what it means to live for the king and for his kingdom. But one thing that we also realize is that the kingdom is upside down. That's why we press the lift button, it doesn't go up. It goes B1 all the way down to B8. And if you want to go up Mount Makarios, you have to start by going down. The kingdom is upside down. Now hold all these things in your heart and in your mind because this will help you as we unpack the sermon from this point forth. And we've only, we've only just begun. So this session, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5 and we'll see in verses 13 to 16, Jesus opens the sermon with a pair of similitudes. In other words, he uses certain pictures that he wants to compare the kingdom people with. He uses salt and he uses a light to illustrate one point. That was what Jesus was doing. We will read the passage, but you know we are going to focus on salt. This picture of you are the salt of the earth for this teaching. And for the next session, we will then go on to unpack the understanding of being the light of the world. So let's look at this passage in its full context. Matthew chapter 5, reading from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is what we're going to do this evening. We're going to make some general observations first. That's good for Bible study, right? We usually like to get into an application too quickly. 
without understanding what the observation is all about, what the text is really talking about, and what is Jesus covering in this whole passage. And then later on, we will look at some implications on what it means to be salt and the significance of salt. So let's begin with this one big statement. You are the salt of the earth. We read this passage, but I don't want you to miss the transition. This comes after the declaration of eight Beatitudes. And actually the last one, Jesus very skillfully and masterfully shifts from a them to a you. Now sometimes if you read the Bible too quickly, we, we miss this. Right? If you look at the first beatitude, the second one is, blessed are these, blessed are those. And then when it comes to the final one in, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he does the segue. He does a little transition. Almost if you, if you don't observe that, you miss it. In verse 11, blessed are you. Suddenly he moves from a them and a they, and he moves into you. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then immediately in verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. Don't miss this transition. Remember that there was a huge audience that was there gathered. There was the disciples who came to Him, but what He spoke, the multitudes were also listening. And so it's a, it's a big congregation, it's a big audience, but instead of declaring just generally about them or everybody, suddenly He gets personal. Jesus goes personal. He talks to you. And if you look at the Greek word in, that's used for this one word called you, it is literally translated you. Yes, you. You. Precisely. That's you. It's that focused. It's not just any old you. It is yes, that's you. Or it's you, you, and you. Don't run away. You know, it's almost like Jesus would be looking at one of those disciples and he's saying, you are the salt of the earth. Don't run away. Don't shift your eyes. You are the salt of the earth. There's another way to translate this. It's not just you, you and you, but you and only you. Am I precise enough? This is it. You know, you. Don't look at anyone else. This is it. You are the one. And if you're still wondering, he's talking to you. Now, this is very uncomfortable. If I was sitting down there, I think I would be squirming in my seat. Because this transition is not any old transition. What was Jesus talking about? You will be persecuted when they revile you, when they say bad things about you, when they do things to you. And then he goes, you, you, you. <gasps> if I was there, immediately I would say, well, okay, well, hang on, hang on. Let's, so let, let's come on, guys. Let's stay together. Let's band together. I mean, you know, it's them against us. But as quickly as I would want to have that kind of an impression, he doesn't stop, it's just you. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Get out there. This is no time for, for staying in here. Yes, all these things will happen to you. All these things might come to you. But you, you, and you, you are the salt of the earth. 
In other words, you got to get out there. The real work is out there. I love to see the way Jesus does this. It's almost like really you blink and you, you sort of lose focus. You miss the entire picture. Just a nice teaching. Oh, I'm the salty of the earth. No, we declare this. And, but we need to be used out there. And then he declares that picture of salt. You are the salt. And yet, it is more than just identity of who you are. It's what you are there for. You are the salt of the earth. It's not just who you are in Christ, but what you are to be doing for Him. He wasn't just identifying you as salt. He was giving you your function and your purpose. Today, I think we are missing something. It's correct and it's good that we have to be clear of who we are in Christ. Amen? Because it is out of who we are that we can be who we should be. But today, we are wanting to camp at who we are and what we have, and we stop there. This phrase and this statement doesn't allow us to have that kind of a thinking. It's not just your identity, it's your function, it is your purpose. Once you observe this general statement of you are the salt of the earth, you begin to understand the tone and the manner of everything else that Jesus will be talking about later in His sermon. If you miss this, then you miss everything else in the sermon. Next time we will talk about you are the light of the world. Same thing, same observations, same parallels. I look at this observation and I said, wow, just in this one line, so many things that I have missed. But what about salt? What is Jesus saying about salt? What is the significance of salt and its uses? Three things I observe. The first thing I see is that it is a very common item. Jesus loved to use these illustrations that are very common and very easily understood. The people that he was talking to, they didn't have to be Bible scholars. They didn't have to attend any school per se or you know, any uh, ministry training. Immediately he says, salt, they know what salt is. Anyone here doesn't know what salt is? Immediately they can connect. They know this. It's a very common item. And if you Google the users of salt, you'll find that you can go up to 40, 50, 60 users of salt and it can extend to so many different things. But primarily in the days of Jesus in those times, primarily two main functions. One was to preserve. Salt was to preserve because there was no such thing as a refrigerator. And in their food processing techniques of those days, salt was a very common item that they would use to preserve so that they would delay that decay of any food items for meat or for fish. The second main function that salt was used for at the time was to flavor or to season, to make the food taste even better. These are the two things. So the moment Jesus says salt, immediately the people would know the function. Do you know that even in the Old Testament times, their offerings and their sacrifices were actually seasoned with salt? So if you understand the two uses, you can easily infer that you cannot sacrifice something that's rotten. They have to preserve that sacrifice 
And number two, you want to season it to taste good so that it is well-flavored as it is lifted up to the Lord. The Jews, his audience, would know all these things. It was a very common item. The second thing is, although it was common, it was a very precious commodity. Very, very precious commodity. I'm led to believe that nations went to war because of salt. It is such a precious resource because imagine if you do not have salt, then really all your food goes bad, then you eat nothing. If you eat nothing, that nation will die. The soldiers will starve. They cannot fight. They need salt. It's a very precious commodity. Do you know that Roman soldiers were paid at first in salt? They were given salt rations. That's how important it was. And the Latin word was spelled S-A-L. And later on, they found it was very difficult to give salt to this guy because they were going to carry all these tons of salt all over the place to, to pay their soldiers. So they exchanged it with currency and they gave them money so that they would be able to buy the salt. So the money that was given to them would be called a salt allowance. So from the word S-A-L, it became a salarium, where today we get the English word salary. Can you see how important this commodity is, this salt thing? It is so precious. Salt might be a common thing that people understand, but it was at the same time extremely precious. The third observation is that it is also used in covenant language. Because of its stable compound, it became known as a symbol of fidelity and constancy. So at times in the Old Testament, you might read of this phrase called a covenant of salt. Let me give you a couple of references here. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I've given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Can you see the significance? So in other words, when salt is involved there, it is a picture of a covenant of faithfulness, of stability. And it is used in that context. Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever? to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt. Now you understand that phrase? Okay, all it means is that God will be faithful and everything will go as he has said. So, just one phrase, you are the salt of the earth. As we observe all these little things, let's move to the implications. What are the salty implications that we can draw from this and we want to be careful, otherwise you end up with faulty impressions. Now, we want salty implications, we don't want faulty impressions, okay, of what salt is and how we are to function as salt. What does this mean to all of us as disciples of Jesus Christ? What was He really saying to the people that were there, and how do we apply this for ourselves? I've got seven points for you, okay, so you take this down. The first thing I observe is that not all salt is salty. Not all salt is salty. 
Now, in those days, there was rock salt. We still have them today. And there's also sea salt. And the sea salt will be derived from either the Mediterranean or the Dead Sea. As you know, it's, it is extremely salty. But when Jesus was talking about salt losing its flavor, he was most likely referring to the rock salt. Because there would be an outer layer that if you take this piece of rock salt, the outer layer was subject to things like impurities from the surrounding region or also exposed to chemical changes, whether it's rain or something like that, you know. And so the outer layer tended to be affected and it would result in a losing of its flavor and the people would take these and discard it and throw it away because it is actually useless. At the same time, it was also very common practice, a very deceptive one, because it's such a precious commodity. They would mix powder, white powder or white sand, you know, and, and put it together just to make up the weight. Salt being so precious and it is sold by weight, they would put white powder with it and adulterate this salt. Whilst the salt can be separated, you can boil it and you can take out the salt and use it, the rest, the residue would be the false salt, so to speak, okay? The, the salt that is not salty and it is then thrown out. So if we look at this, impurities, um, chemical changes, the outer layer being subject to all these changes, being adulterated to be mixed with other things. Would there be lessons for us? Would there be implications for us as disciples of Jesus Christ? Very possible, right? We can look at these things and we ask ourselves, how exposed are we to worldly culture and worldly influence? Very, very possible. We are watching their movies, we are reading their books, we are you know, looking at their articles, we are looking at their pictures, we have imbibed a lot of these values and you know, we can be mixed with these impurities, we can be adulterated by all these kinds of teaching and today we see that the doctrines even within the church, we have trouble trying to separate what really is true and what is not. And the craziest thing is that as Christians, we are still arguing about it. We are fighting with one another with all these things. And isn't it funny? Not all salt is salty, which means that, you know, all of us as Christians, we may look and talk like salt, but we may not be salty salt. And this is really something for us to be careful. And before we point a finger at, at, the, at the next person, we've got to ask ourselves, you know, does that apply to us? Do we talk Christian but don't live kingdom at all? It's so easy to quote things, to post things, to, to put a verse here, put a verse there. You know, but when it comes to true kingdom living, that's not any one of us. Not all salt is salty. And I like a parallel passage that Jesus taught about salt also. And you see this in Luke chapter 14. And if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you just turn to Luke chapter 14 because we are going to refer to it later on also. You keep your bookmark there. In Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, specifically in verse 34, Jesus talks about salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? So there's a reference to salt. But the interesting thing is, what was he teaching about before that one verse? 
from verses 25 to 33, he was actually saying to everyone, if you don't do this, you're not worthy to be my disciples. If you're not prepared to, for this kind of living, then you're not worthy to be my disciples. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple, right? And then after, immediately after he says the last one, he cannot be my disciple, suddenly he goes, salt is good. In other words, if you want to be salt that is good, I think, I think, you look at and infer, we have to be disciples. Is that yes or no? We have to be true disciples of Jesus. So it's not just about knowing your Bible study. It's not just about knowing a few Bible verses here and there, attending church, you know, uh, marking your attendance. Jesus never taught it that way. He says, look, if you don't break with relationships, if you do not you know, get ready for this, you're not ready to take up a cross, you cannot be my disciple. And then he says, salt is good. If we want to be good salt, if we want to be salt that is salty, Guess what? We need to be true disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen? Not all salt is salty. And today when you look at the church, not every Christian lives as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Point number two. Unsalty salt is good for nothing. Unsalty salt is good for nothing. Now, you know this story well or this passage well in Genesis chapter 1, the creation story. After God creates something, He looks at it and He says it was good. And He says it was good. He says it was good. And after everything, He looked at everything and everyone. And He said it was very good. Now, the question is good for what? Good to look at. Uh. You know, today in Hokkien, we say, uh, oh, nice to look at, uh, but not nice to eat. Nah. So if something is only nice and pretty to look at, then it's good for that, lah, but it's good for nothing else. But I know my God, when He creates something, He says it's good, it's always good for something. Amen? It's always good for something. There's a function for everything that He has made them for. It's a purpose. And He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing. It is good for nothing. Salt is good for what is meant to be good for. But once it loses its flavor, and once it loses its salty properties, it is now good for nothing. And it is to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Now catch this, alright? First we talk about discipleship. How do disciples live? How do disciples you know, prepare themselves that we do not lose our flavor? Look at this one word that is translated from. It's called morino. Morino is translated from a root word moros, where we get this English word moron. I have to pause for effect. And the word moron refers to someone who lives foolishly. It's a fool. He is a fool. In other words, my dear friends, if we are Christians but we don't live wise in the Lord and we are living as if we are fools, then we are salt that has lost its flavor. We are not salty and that's why we can't live as disciples of Jesus Christ today. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to verse 17, he says, come on, you know, the days are evil. Walk as wise. 
not as fools. Redeem the time. Be circumspect. Be careful. Now, to be sure, let's be careful in this understanding that a fool is not someone who didn't pass PSLE. A fool is not someone who didn't make it to the express stream or, you know, get into a gifted program. A fool is not someone who is not a graduate. This is not the point. Biblically, a fool is someone who does not walk according to the ways of God. Amen? And God is saying, look, you've got to know my word. You've got to know the king. You've got to know what my kingdom is all about. And so, yeah, I know, my God, you want to prosper me? Why? You want to make me rich? Why? You want to let me have all my possessions? Why? You want to give me all these things? Say, no, God says, no, come on, come on, come on. That's the way of the world. Unless you become foolish in the things of the world, you will not be wise in the ways of the kingdom. Huh? The kingdom is upside down. But today we have Christians and believers of Jesus Christ, people supposedly of the kingdom, wanting to live the ways of the world and trying to shift every passage to justify themselves to walk in that way. The Bible doesn't say it. The Bible says that if you live the way I want you to live, people will look at you and say that you are stupid. And that's why Paul says, yeah, you're very smart. I'm a fool. And I love his holy sarcasm. His sanctified sarcasm. Oh, you're rich. Oh, you're abundant. Oh, you're very good. So I stupid lah. It's okay. I would rather be a fool for Jesus Christ. Amen? That's salty salt. In Luke chapter 14, verse 35, the passage which we referred to just now, Jesus goes on to say, If the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know, if we play the fool, literally, if we play the fool and we begin to walk foolish, Jesus is saying this very clearly to all of us. You have lost your flavor. Unsalty salt is good for nothing. It is not even fit for the manure pile. You can't even use it as manure. You're worse than dung. At least dung can fertilize something and make things grow. If we don't live as kingdom disciples, the words of Jesus says, we are neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. I had to preface that with the words of Jesus. Otherwise, people get upset with me. Am I reading scripture, friends? Do we understand this? Unsalty salt is good for nothing. The third thing that we have to be careful about is beware of alternatives that are faulty but not salty. Beware of the alternatives that are present today in the market. Today with food technology, we have artificial flavoring. We have preservatives. We have chemical fertilizers. And they all seem to serve the same function as salt. They all even look like salt sometimes. I mean, look at these two pictures. You know, if, if I just show you one of them, you might be confused as in which is the right salt and which is the wrong salt if it was salt even in the first place. Everything looks the same, but actually it's hazardous. Today we have things like the MSG. And the MSG is not the Bible in the message translation. <laughs> the MSG stands for monosodium glutamate. And do you know that our food is full of this? MSG everywhere you go. 
And be careful when you read a package or a sign that says, no added MSG. It just means that they've added something else already. They didn't, they didn't put any more MSG for you. Okay? But it's also been known that MSG causes obesity, eye damage, headaches, fatigue, depression. Anybody need healing from this? Stop MSG. If you stop that, you'll see that your health will begin to improve. I don't even need to lay hands and pray for you. The second thing is things like BHT or BHA. You want to know how to pronounce it? I'll try slowly. Butylated hydroxytoluene. Butylated hydroxyanisole. BHT, BHA. Never heard of before, right? Let me tell you what they use this in. Your cereals, chewing gum, thankfully it's banned in Singapore. Potato chips, BHA has been shown to cause tumours in rats, rabbits, and hamsters. You want to try on yourself? Not only that, today we're also very familiar with nitrates and the nitrite family commonly added to bacon, ham, hot dogs, luncheon meat, smoked fish, corned beef. See, in days of old, when they would prepare these things, they would use salt. But today, we add all these things because it's faster and it's easier. And studies have linked eating these things to various types of cancer. So you have to be very, very careful if you take this every day or every meal. Think about it for a while. Be aware and be careful of these alternatives. Because is it not true that today, in our lives, we are looking for artificial preservatives and things for our marriages, our families, and our personal lives. You look at our relationships, they are breaking down. And we say, oh, you've got to add flavor to that relationship. Go for a holiday. After you go for a holiday, same problem. Go for another holiday. Go for another holiday, come back, same problem. Go for a longer holiday. And you're always trying to find that flavor in something else. Am I right? We're trying to get something to fix it when we should be the salt in that relationship. We should be disciples of Jesus Christ in that relationship. And like MSG, you know, it enhances the flavor for a moment. But you know, the moment after your dinner, you take too much MSG, it leaves you even more thirsty. And that's why you can't get out of that cycle. Instead of dealing with root issues and causes, you, we, we prefer to add stuff. You know, we're trying to find a fix it, a quick fix to, to postpone the problem to a later expiry date. And after a while, marriages break down, families break down, things all go haywire. Why? Because they are alternatives. They are not the real thing. That's why relationships are dying. Morality is dying. Society is crumbling. And if salty alternatives don't work, let's get to genetically modified foods, right? Because we want everything fast. We want everything much bigger. So we chemically induce these things. And if you look at the picture of the two fish down there, one is a small fish, the other one is the big fish, but the small one is naturally grown. They are both salmon, by the way. And the big one, which is like double the size, is farmed, genetically modified. And it's to feed a culture of greed. Because we just buy and eat and eat and eat, and the more salmon we want, the more salmon you have to produce. Instead of growing one salmon, why don't we grow 
one that is double the size. And it can grow faster even and half that time. Now you know why our healthcare cost is going up. And if all these things don't work, there's always sugar. It looks like salt, but it tastes much better sometimes, right? Sweet stuff gives you an energy high also. And you realize that this sugar thing is, is becoming an epidemic. We have a big problem. In the physical, we've, we have to fight against diabetes and all the other problems related to it. But spiritually, don't you see that there's also a parallel? That we are told that we have to be sweet and nice to everyone. You know, don't, don't talk about sin. You know, it's not nice to listen. You know, don't offend everyone. Just come and give them a nice sugar-coated message. Sweeten everything so that your attendance can go up. Sugar is also an alternative. And it tastes really good. But salt, I know it flavors, but do you realize that when salt is applied to an open wound, it stings. It's painful. Nobody likes that. And if we are here to preserve and to heal and to prevent decay, we need the salt. Sugar will feed something that is already not good and make it even worse. So be careful of alternatives. The fourth point is, an optimum amount of salt is all that is needed. You don't have to throw salt all over the place, you know, any way you want. That's not the way to use salt. Those of you who cook, you would know this phrase called a pinch of salt or a dash of salt. I have no understanding what this is. I usually pinch too big. <laughs> I've tried it before, right? They say a pinch of salt and I really, maybe I have a clump of salt and it just doesn't taste good anymore. But if you know a pinch of salt, that would be enough. It's optimum. You don't have to dunk someone in a tub of salt. You don't have to do that. You see, the kingdom of God is upside down. It's not about the amount we use. It's not about the numbers we are trying to accumulate. It's not about all these things. The bigger, the better, the more, the merrier. It's about effectiveness. And all we need is an optimum amount. Now you think about this, you imagine on the countryside, the mountainside, when Jesus was declaring this, thousands would follow Him. The multitudes were there listening to Him. But all He needed was a handful of disciples who would be salty salt. He wasn't trying to convert everyone to salt. He's trying to tell them, look, if you want to be salt, then be salt. Otherwise, it's useless. You'll be, you'll be thrown out. I'm sure it offended quite a few people. Thrown out? Are you sure? Oh, you call me dunghill. Uh. I'm not coming to church anymore. Jesus wasn't afraid to lose the crowds. He never lowered the bar for His discipleship program. All He needed was a handful, an optimum amount of salt, and He knew that would be enough. What's the implication of this for all of us? You look at that little bit of salt. That's you. You know, sometimes we look at ourselves, oh, but I'm not big enough. Oh, I'm not anointed enough. Oh, I'm not this enough. I'm enough. You are the salt, amen? And if that's what you are and that's all you are, it's enough. You are that salt to be in that marriage. If you are looking at your marriage now, be a salty husband. If you are a wife now, be a salty wife. In parenting, be a salty father. Be a salty mother. 
Are you catching this, friends? You are the salt. And all that is required is you. You see, sometimes we keep thinking, oh, if only I got this, oh, if only I got that, you know, and then we're like, oh, I'm the only one. I, I, look, I, I'm as much guilty of it as anyone else in this room. And God will have to remind us and say, look, come on, you are the one, that's it, but you've got me, amen? If you are effective, that's all that is needed and things will be preserved. The marriage will work. The family will be there. The workplace will be a good place. The society will have salty citizens wherever they are placed. An optimum amount of salt is all that is needed. And here's, here's the cool part. You don't even have to be branded salt. Common salt is good, amen? Amen. As long as the salt is salty. And this is the most beautiful picture I get out of this entire teaching because we are keepers, we are almost anonymous. Nobody knows us, but God knows us by name. Amen? If you would be salt wherever you are placed. Jesus says in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Then he says this, have salt in yourself and have peace with one another. You see, if you are salt, then you will have peace with one another. You will be a peacemaker, and these shall be called sons of God. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul tells the church in Colossae, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So if you are salt in that relationship, whether church or anywhere else, if you are seasoned with salt, that you are salty, then the words that come out will be flavorful. You are the one. I am that one. An optimal amount of salt is all that is needed. We just need to be salty salt and not faulty salt. Point number five. Do you know that salt, if it's concentrated in one location, that's not desirable? Sometimes we think, right, oh, let's get more salt, let's have more salt, you know. So the more salt, the better. I discovered this in the Bible, that there are these things called salt lands. And in warning the people against forsaking God, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23, this would be the effect of someone who forsakes God. The whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. This is what happens when a land is filled with salt. When there's too much salt concentrated in one place, you can't sow there, you can't bear anything there, you can't grow anything there. Look at Jeremiah. In chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, where this warns us not to trust in man, but only to trust in God. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Nothing can happen in a salt land. Too much salt concentrated in one location is not desirable. Are you catching the inference down here? Friends, if you and I are all salt and we're all salty salt and we're all good salt and we keep staying together, nothing is going to grow in this place. 
if we stay together with a holy huddle and, oh, high salt, oh, high salt, oh, you good salt, you great A salt, you great B salt, you know, oh, come, let's salt, let's salt, let's salt each other and keep salting together. Nothing is going to grow in this congregation. Nothing is going to grow in this salt land. And then we wonder why. That when we come together often and often and often, nothing is happening. Why? Because we are the salt of the earth. Too much salt concentrated in one location is not desirable. Don't get the wrong message. I'm not saying don't fellowship. Huh? I'm not saying don't assemble. I'm not saying don't go to church. Please, God forbid that you get the wrong message. I'm saying if we are really salt, we will know where we'll have to be. And as I look at this point number six, it's better to be salt shaken out than salt thrown out. I'd rather be salt that is shaken out than salt that is thrown out. My friends, I believe this is the awakening every believer requires. We have to be shaken out of our comfort zones. That's a painful part. And so if you are going through a season of discomfort, if you are going through perhaps a season of what I call holy discontent, it means that you know, you've, you've come to a point of understanding who Jesus is, designed to live for the kingdom, wanting to be a disciple of Jesus, but somehow something is not happening. Have you, can you identify with me? It's like something is not happening to me. It's like, Lord, what is that? You're in a good place. Get ready because God's going to shake you out. God's going to shake you out. And I found myself, you know, I was comfortable perhaps as a dean of a school of ministry. I was comfortable perhaps, you know, in a job as a pastor. Everything was sort of secure. But suddenly there was that, that that frustration that came upon me. And I was praying a very dangerous prayer then. I said, Lord, am I where you want me to be? Now, if you are prepared to pray that dangerous prayer, then get ready because God's hand might be on that salt shaker. It's like, oh, I heard that prayer. <laughs> oh, shake, shake, shake. Shake, shake, shake. And those who are praying those prayers, you know, it's like that salt is just shaken out. It's like, get out there. You've got to do what I want you to be doing. You're no good in that cluster. You're no good in that clump. I need to get you out. And I tell you, sometimes it's scary to be shaken out. But I want to testify to the Lord's goodness that today I tell you there's no place I'd rather be than to be doing what the Lord has asked me to do. And that's why I'm hung up about us knowing our kingdom assignments. Because you'll be a very frustrated, salty salt if you're not salting something. So pray. Better to be salt shaken out than salt thrown out. It's a good thing. And the Lord actually says this. He says, yet once more I will shake the heavens and also earth. And I think we're really coming to the season. You get ready, yeah? Already it's happening. That we'll come to a point where whether you like it or not, the shaking will be there. And we see these things happening already in other countries far away from us. And sometimes it's too far so we think, oh, it won't happen to us. You know, I mean, can you imagine Singapore, gender-free bathrooms, you know, where the guy can walk into the lady's uh, toilet and say, you know, I, I, I feel woman today, so uh, I want to go to the woman's bathroom. You say, oh, that's never going to happen. Really? What if it happens? What are you going to do about it? See, come that time, you better be salt. 
And you better stand up. And even if it means, you know, someone throwing things at you or suing you or closing your business down, will you live for Jesus? But friends, today I'm convinced I'd rather be salt shaken out than salt thrown out. Because if I'm thrown out, then I know that I'm fit not even for a dunghill. But if I'm shaken out, then I know God has a task for me. Amen. He says, I will shake you out and I will shake these things because it indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. Man-made things and structures and what the world promises you, God will shake everything. But the things that cannot be shaken, that will remain. And I think that's when God's going to separate the salty from the faulty. Will you live for Jesus? I believe we should decide now. Point number seven, I want to be worth my salt. Remember that soldiers were paid in salt. And this phrase, to be worth your salt, which we use today as an English idiom, is derived from that understanding that a soldier, when he's paid in salt, did he perform his best? Was he deserving of what he was paid? And if he was then he would be a person who was worth his weight in salt. Now today we've used this phrase as an extension when we look at a person and we say he's worth his salt as a mark of respect and of admiration. In other words, what he says he is, he is. How he functions, that's the real deal. And so I want to be worth my weight in salt. But we have to look at it in a slightly different way uh, perspective because we are not really being paid as it were and so I see my worth in two ways the first way is I ask myself how much was my king's sacrifice worth how much is this sacrifice of his own life worth how much is the shedding of his blood worth and he did that, that I might be saved and be translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and of love of his glorious Son. Amen? How much is that worth? And I think sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we underplay it. But if you know how much that cost our Savior, which we sang that song just now, I'll never know how much it cost. You took my sin upon that cross. If we understand that worth of what our Savior did to go through and, and went through, that I may be saved and delivered into a righteous kingdom, then I ask myself, would I now walk worthy of what He has given to me? You see, you can't walk worthy of anything that you have not counted its worth. So in other words, if you don't count it of large worth or significant worth, then our walk will be only worth that much. But Paul in the epistles repeatedly told the people of God, this is what has been done for you. This is what you have received. This is the grace. This is the power. This is the love. Now walk worthy. Start with what Jesus has done for us. And then you see whether our salt is worth that weight or what He has given to us. But you and I are also fellow soldiers, amen, of the Lord's army. And so as a soldier of the army, 
we can look forward to the reward when we stand before our commander-in-chief. And on that day, as a righteous judge, he'll look at us and he will determine the worth of our service to him. Finally. That day, I want to be worth my soul. Amen. That day, I want to be worth everything that Jesus died for me for and that I serve Him to the best of my ability enabled by His grace. Amen. I want to be worth my salt. And you know, in Revelations chapter 3, verse 4, where Jesus pronounced a judgment or a warning to the church in Sardis, this is the church that is asleep. This is a church that has a reputation of being alive but is dead. Whenever I read that one line, it scares me. Because today, we have churches that are jumping. We have churches that are mega. We have churches that are doing so many things. And Jesus could come even with this one phrase to say, you have a reputation of being alive. But actually, you're dead. That's a scary line. But I thank God that within that, He says, you have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I want to be worth my salt. Amen. I want to walk worthy of my Lord. That's what it means. You are the salt of the earth. Seven implications for us. And I suggest you, you'll do us well even to just review these implications because it's so easy, you know, to listen to a message. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That church is like that. Yeah, thankfully, I'm not like that. I think we have to ask ourselves, am I salty salt? Because Jesus said, you, yes, you, 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 only you. No one else. You. You are the salt of the earth. Let me close with this. I think we all agree the world is in moral decay. With all the technological advances that we are seeing, with all the nice things that seem to be so much better, the quality of life and so on, morally, the world is decaying. Truth is being challenged. In the church, even truth is being rejected. Let's be convinced salty salt is needed. But as I close and you look at this one line once more, you are the salt of the earth. Don't look at this picture of, of, the, of the earth, the globe per se, and you're like, oh, you know, you start again. I'm so little bit of salt. What can I do for the entire world? Don't look at that, okay? Because the Greek word that's translated earth can also be translated land. Land, just land versus the sea as opposed to the sea. So it's not the entire earth that you're supposed to go salt. What if I tell you, you are the salt of this land? In Singapore, God has placed us here. Can we do something for our society? 
Can we do something for our country? Can we do something for the Church of Singapore in this nation, in this land? I know some of you are looking at it and say, oh, but land's still quite big, lay country. Lay. I know Singapore very small, it's still country, you know. Do you know that this one word can also be translated ground? You are the salt of the ground. Ground. Everyone, stamp your feet a little bit. Ground. And you and I love to claim this wherever your feet will, will step on. Claim that for Jesus. Now go salt it. We are to be salt wherever that ground is. Because the truth is still, wherever you put your foot on, that is kingdom ground. Amen? Because we are ambassadors of Christ and for His kingdom. And so I want to leave you with this charge. You are the salt of the land, the ground, the earth. Brothers and sisters, go preserve it. Go add some flavour to relationships. Create a thirst, if you have to, for Jesus. Heal, if you have to, even if it means some pain and discomfort when salt is applied. Finally, if you want one little bit of bonus about what salt is, another use of salt. Salt was also used to mark territory. And so kings and uh, armies would take salt and they would sow it onto the land, throw it on the land to demarcate a new territory and to put in a new purpose for this land. In a passage in the Bible, it talks about rubbing salt on newborn infants. And that symbolically is also to set them apart for new things and a new purpose. So as we close with that picture of salt, know that you can go into any land and any ground, and if you are salt in that place, you separate it and mark it for a new kingdom purpose. You are the salt of the earth. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for such a simple picture of salt. And yet, Lord, so many things that we can learn from this. Lord Jesus, thank you for your teaching that is clear and precise. But forgive us, Lord, when we, we try and turn it into what it's not or we try to make it into something that we are more comfortable with. But Lord, your word is truth. And I pray, Lord, let it cut, let, let it cut us, Lord, because we desire to be salty salt. And as we have already acknowledged, Lord, salt, when applied to something that is broken or not correct, it stings. And if it had stung us a little bit as we would have listened to this truth, let it be so, Lord, so that we can be aligned back with you, Lord, to live as disciples of the King and His kingdom. And so, Lord, as we close, will you dismiss us? We are the salt of the earth, not because of what we have done, but because of who you have made us to be. So let us walk worthy of our call that we may be found worthy before you when we come face to face with you.
Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.